0: Morning exchange. That is what we're doing today. We're here to praise the incredible name of Christ. Not just because that's what we're supposed to do, because when we do it, it's, it's as if our soul says, this is what you were made for. Right? And so we're going to be in John chapter one today uh, finishing up, uh, we getting close to finishing up that chapter. So if you want to turn there, if you use your device, uh, you can find us on the, um, you version app, but also the church center app is probably a better place to start. Uh, that gives you all the information about Exchange and who we are, uh, some of the things that we have going on. And so just a couple of things as we get going today. If this is your first time, we would love to say uh, we are glad that you're here. I hope that you got to meet some of our folks on our way in. Um, And certainly that's one of the best things about Exchange is the people that are sitting around you singing for you and with you, like Jesse said. And one of the ways that we uh, would like to connect is if you came in, you got a blue card in one of the bags, And uh, we would love for you to fill that out. That would be a favor to us. And all that will do is this. Um, Either myself or Ed or other pastor will give you a call this week just to say hello. Uh, We won't try to sell you on anything. We won't ask when's the next time you're coming back or anything like that, right? Uh, We just want to make ourselves available uh, as we have even uh, on the screen. You can find my email there. Uh, We always invite conversation. We think that's uh, really, really important. So we would love to say hello in that way. Also, uh, you will find that today is a great day to visit. We have lunch. Uh, We call this Sunday table. It happens once a month here at Exchange. And it's one of our favorite parts uh, of our Sunday rhythms. Uh, I think it's a great way to, to meet people. And so I'd encourage you to do a couple things today. Exchange at Sunday table. Are you ready for a challenge? Yes, somebody's ready for a challenge. Brian Allen looked at me and he shook his head. He said, I'm, I'm ready for it. Right. Uh, the challenge is this a couple things. One, uh, try to I know typically here's what we do. We, we typically go through the line. Uh, we look for our people uh, that are in our small group and that we spend a lot of time with. I would encourage you to maybe uh, look for someone that you do not know or have not sat with at Sunday table before and choose to share a meal with them. Okay. That's a big challenge. I know for your introverts, you just died inside, right? Uh, but most likely, you're married to someone who can do this, right? Uh, and so uh, rely on them to carry you through, okay? Second thing is, uh, I would I would just urge our, especially our, our young, hungry men, uh, as they go through, uh, what I'd say is students, yes. As you go through, like, just remember that there's 200 people behind you. Okay. There's 200 people behind you that would love to get one of those sliders. And so uh, do that with, with, with respect to the other uh, 199, right? Uh, so uh, we would hope that you stay. If you didn't bring anything today, that's no problem. We have more than enough because our young students will leave you some, right? So there's, a, uh, there's an interesting dilemma that uh, psychiatrist Milton Roick um, wrote about in, in a book that he, he called The Three Christs of Yessa It's a town in, in Michigan, actually. And he described the uh, crazy scenario that he found himself as one uh, that w- he would never find again. Uh, he had three patients who suffered from uh, the same delusions of grandeur. Uh, each of them believed that he was unique among mankind and that he was called to save the world. At one moment in his clinic, he had three people who claimed to be the Messiah. They displayed full blown cases uh, of uh, schizophrenic, uh, different mental disorders in its most purest form, he says. So he found it difficult uh, to break through in, in any of those cases. And he had an idea to help the patients accept the truth about identity. He decided that since there were three of them there, he would have a group discussion. They would have to assert their identity as the messianic uh, prophecy to as almost this 12 step recovery group. And he led uh, some interesting conversations. One would claim he said, I'm the Messiah, the son of God, and I was sent here to save the earth. Uh, how do you know, Roach would say, and he said, well, God told me. And one of the other patients would say, I never told you such a thing. Every once in a while, he said he would get a glimmer of reality, never deep or long, so deeply engraved was the Messiah complex, he said. But the progress that he made was pretty much uh, by putting them together. And it was crazy, this idea of taking a group of deluded, would-be messiahs and putting them into a community to see if they could be cured. But I wonder if, what does it say about someone when they have the ability to convince the crowd they're following with their prestige that they are the messiah? And instead of claiming that the title, they point to someone else, someone who they would say is greater, and who is the one who has come to save the world. It would cause us to pause, it would cause us to pause to listen to this person who has the platform, who has the following, who has the crowd, who has the ability to gain even more accolades. And then he says, don't look at me, look at him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of of the world. And that's what we see in our passage today. It causes us to look at the one that John's pointing to John the Baptist, who has an established and still growing group of followers. He's pushing our eyes towards Jesus. And today, especially we're going to be talking about how John wrote and John the Baptist. There's two different Johns. I think I'll try to, uh, uh, make that point when we get there. But uh, I would pick up in verse 19 uh, through 34. So if you would read with me there. So this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist, not John the author here. When the Jews sent him to the priests, uh, sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What should you say about yourself? And he said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent by the Pharisees and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, not Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands the one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me in the thong of, the, of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, verse 29, he saw John Jesus coming uh, to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is he on behalf on whom I have said, After he, me comes a man who is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, saying, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So we have this uh, really incredible prologue that's already told us that John has come to testify about the light, but John continues here, and he, he gives this full-blown testimony, an explicit and unmistakable testimony uh, of uh, of his knowing that Jesus is the Messiah. John apparently has the attention of the religious rulers of the day. They sent an investigation party from Jerusalem to Bethany to figure out who he was. Bethany is a relatively small and quiet village located at the base of Mount Olives, about two and a half miles away from Jerusalem. Not a big deal, but we would come to listen and hear more about Bethany later on in chapter 11 when Jesus raises John the Baptist from the dead there in this little town. It'll become a town of great dispute and great um, um, disagreement. And so they begin with the question, who are you? But John knows that there are implications. Apparently, they don't just come up to John and be, so, so who are you, John? John understands that they're implying a statement when they ask the question. He doesn't even ask for clarity. He says this in verse 20, and he confesses and did not deny. And this is what he confessed. I am not the Christ. Isn't it interesting that John doesn't even ask questions about their question. He says, I know what you're thinking and it's not true. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who you're looking for. I'm not the one who we have been waiting for. And so then they asked him a second question. Well, then are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. And are you a prophet? And he said, no. They thought if John the Baptist was not the Messiah, perhaps he was some other figure uh, popularly as- associated with end times. The, the prophets would, uh, would, Malachi especially, in Malachi 4-5 uh, would say that, that Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So false prophets had also often dressed themselves like they imagined, or that Elijah was said to have dressed uh, in order to to gain a following. And certainly Elijah and the Baptist both sternly in, in, uh, insisted on the urgency of repentance. There was a similar message, but to the question of Jerusalem de- delegation, John firmly says, "I'm not. I'm not John the Baptist. I'm not Elijah." He says. It's interesting, though, in the synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all report that Jesus identified John the Baptist as an Elijah type. In fact, Jesus' words are, are often confused in this way. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, he says this, Jesus speaking, For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. The one who has ears, let him hear. So, so Jesus isn't teaching some strange doctrine of reincarnation. John isn't actually Elijah coming down from heaven a second time. He's like Elijah, he's the Elijah of that day. He's relentlessly preaching the same message that Elijah would uh, would preach repent. But it seems like the Baptist never himself actually made the connection. He refuses to make it, actually. The refusal which when placed beside the synoptic evidence uh, suggests that he didn't detect as much significance about his own ministry than Jesus did. He would say, I'm just, I'm I'm not anyone special. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm just saying that there's one coming behind me. But here's what John did recognize. He said the one, the prophet who would say these words, a voice is calling out That's what I'm trying to do. It was a passage from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, where Isaiah would write, the voice of the one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God, and let every valley be lifted up and let every mountain and hill be made low and let the uneven ground become plain and the rugged terrain, a broad valley and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So John says, I'm that guy, whether or not that's one guy or all of our mission, that's what my mission is. My mission is to flatten out the path for the Lord to, to be the voice in the wilderness crying, watch and wait, repent. I'll push down the hills, I'll push up the valleys, I'll do everything I can to take away your hurdles and watch you see him. I'll speak the name of Jesus. I'll speak it in a way that's distinctively Jesus. I think sometimes in our culture, we, we have this idea that, you know, if we're just kind and we're just nice to people, we're polite, maybe they'll see Jesus in us. But there's a lot of hospitable people in the world. There's a lot of kind people in the world. There's a lot of people who, who speak really well. But our purpose, our mission should be dis, to be distinctly Jesus. First Peter pushes us to this. He says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, make him everything of your life. And when you've done that, it will propel people to ask you about your life. And he says this, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Here's what I would say. Here's what I want to press on those who are attempting to follow Christ with everything is this, is that everything about our lives and our words should tell the truth about Jesus. Everything about our lives and our words should tell the truth about Jesus the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we interact, all of those things, when we follow Jesus and we claim to be a follower of Jesus, then we should be following him so closely that the world looks at us and says, who and what are you following? Where do you find hope? Where does your faith come from? In the midst of despair and brokenness, why is it that you have joy? What is this? this extra level of kindness and hope and hospitality. Why have you extended this to me? You guys know that I live a strange life. Uh, I live this uh, balance of being a pastor and and a farmer. And it's uh, oftentimes gives me a lot of material to work with. And uh, recently I've been selling roosters as a side hustle you know, it's just, this just happens. We, we hatched too many last year. And, and um, so we put some online because, you know, that's what you do. Best case scenario is someone shows up your house and, and buys a $10 rooster. The worst case scenario, somebody shows up your house and kills you. So it's, it's (laughs) worth, it's worth the risk, right? Um, So we're selling these roosters, you know, and and this guy, I met this guy Orlando who came and he bought a rooster for me. uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a week ago he called me the day after and he said, hey, the rooster's gone. And I was like, well, I don't, that sounds like a personal problem, man. <laughs> he said, well, do you have another? And I was like, yeah, come get another, you know? And so we, we, we strike up this kind of relationship, just talking back and forth about what could have possibly happened to this rooster. And so yesterday, uh, uh, Friday, he, he comes back and he's grabbing another rooster. I was like, take two, man, you know? And, uh, just in case, you know? <laughs> and, uh, So we're talking and he asked me what I do for a living. And I said, you know, I'm a pastor and he goes, Oh, that's why you're so nice. And I was like, no, 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 Orlando, that's actually, uh, you'd be surprised, you know. Um, I was like, no, Orlando, being a pastor doesn't make me nice. He said, Jesus changed my life. Do you know Jesus? He smiles and said, yeah, I, I know Jesus. And we had just this great five minute conversation really quickly about how Jesus completely changes everything. But for some reason, I think we have as a church, not just exchange, but the the church, I just, I feel like we're hesitant to speak Jesus. Why is that? I think sometimes it's it's because, (laughs) it speaks for the same reason, I sometimes hesitate to put the exchange church magnet on my car. Because when I have that, I, I, I can't honk the horn as long as I would like, right? I think sometimes we, we feel like when we speak the name of Jesus, like we, we have to live up to that. And I, I wonder if that's just a good thing for us to constantly speak the name of Jesus so often that we say, man, I need to represent my Lord really well. And when I make a mistake, I need to represent my Lord really well by remembering that he pours and heaps on grace after grace and mercy on top of mercy. That we speak the name of Jesus, we live the name of Jesus, that we tell the truth with their lives about Jesus. And so the Pharisees, the, the, the people that they sent, obviously want an answer from, from John they had been sent from the Pharisees. And so they ask him, so they kind of divert their attention. So John has answered their questions, not to their liking. Uh, but you know, the, he, he's not the Messiah, he's not Elijah, and uh, he's not the great prophet. And so now, because he's denied all of those things, they have a problem. Well, you're baptizing, John. So who gave you this kind of authority to, to baptize? And so they're asking other questions, they're kind of diverting the conversation. Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, Elijah, or prophet? And John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands the one whom you do not know. It's he who comes after me of whom I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. And these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing people. So they come back like religious rulers would continually do to John and to Jesus. And say, yeah, 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 John. Okay, so you're not Jesus. You're, you're not the Messiah. You're not the prophet. You're not Elijah. Uh, but why are you baptizing? Let's talk about why you think that you can do that. Why you have authority. Why you have this ability. And now let's move the conversation uh, and get distracted by this fact that John isn't supposed to be doing this. And he says, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's get back to Jesus. Like he, he doesn't even acknowledge their questions at that point. He pushes the conversation back to Jesus. He doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't care. He's not getting into it. He said, what you should be doing is you should be looking for the one who is coming, who's the one uh, in your midst among you. You don't even see him. John says, look carefully. Look carefully. You'll find him. So in the next verse, uh, verse 29, he, John, the author, gives us this kind of look at what's happening. And he says this, In the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Quite possibly, uh, one of the greatest phrases ever written. It' said that that at one point, uh, Charles Spurgeon was testing the acoustics uh, in an uh, auditorium that he would preach in that night, and he used that phrase loud and bolsterous, and someone cleaning the building came down and surrendered their heart to Christ because of that. Here's the incredible theme that runs through Scripture, is that Christ will take away our sin. He takes it away. And we see this all the way back at the very beginning, uh, this illustration and this foreshadowing of the lamb that would cover all sin. At the very beginning uh, in Genesis, we see some type of sacrifice, although it's vague. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve walking in perfect unity with God, they decide to disobey God, to go away from God, to, to really rebel and to choose their own way. And because of that, they felt exposed. They felt vulnerable because they were. At that moment, they became God's enemy. Not that God was their enemy, but they were God's enemy. They were saying, I can do it better. I know better. I want to be my own God. So we see in Genesis chapter 3 that a covering was made. for him. Notice this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God himself made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Though it doesn't tell us that this was a lamb, it would point to the need for a covering. In Genesis chapter 2, we read the story of Abraham and Isaac ascending to the mountain. And it would be a great foreshadowing of both God sacrificing his only son and the ram that would take his place. We do see the the explicit introduction of the sacrificial lamb introduced in the book of Exodus. We went through this last year, um, but it's important to review again. In Exodus, uh, we have this Passover lamb, and it's a great foreshadowing of Christ. If you remember the last plague, Pharaoh ignored all of the warnings, all the other plagues given by God. And so at this point, the angel of death is going to pass through Egypt and he's going to kill the firstborn of every living thing. The only way that this angel of death would pass over your home and your family was through the blood of a lamb. And God would give these explicit instructions. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5 through 13 He says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you should keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And do not eat any of it raw or boiled with any, uh, at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And shall leave any of it until morning, but whatever is left until morning, you shall burn it with fire. Now you should eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all of the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood, listen to this, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So we see this very clear introduction though very foreign to us that God would introduce here that that his judgment will pass over when he sees the blood of a lamb. It wasn't just a lamb that was sacrificed to pay close attention it's a dead lamb. I want you to think through something here the command was given at the the preparations at the 10th day of the month that they were to take a lamb who would be about a year older, younger from the flock. I'm not sure if you've ever been around a young lamb like that. Very cute, very cuddly. Now they're, they're, their hair and their wool is not matted yet. They're, they have no blemish. They would take it from the herd and keep it until the 14th day. So they would take it on the 10th day. Until the 14th day. Those of you who are parents in the room, think about this for a second. When you bring this little lamb home for four days and you feed it, you might even name it. And there comes a part on that 14th day where the father would stretch this lamb's neck up. And he would take the shearing knife and and he would slaughter the lamb. And I can imagine if, without being gruesome, I can imagine that white wool being stained scarlet red. And I'm sure the children, I'm sure the children would cry. I'm sure they would ask, why, Abba? And he would look at them and say, it's either him or you. This sacrifice means that God will pass his judgment over us. The blood of this lamb will tell him he can pass through. There's so much throughout this chapter about the lamb, but I love uh, verse three where it says, tell the congregation of Israel on the 10th day, that they should take it according to their father's house. Watch this, a lamb for a household. As you read through chapter 12, you start to realize this importance of the slain lamb and the blood. There's so much of it. In verse six, it says, slaughter the lamb. Verse seven, apply it to the doorpost, the blood. Verse 13, the blood will be a sign for their homes. It's this way because blood represents life. Without blood, there is no life. And in the blood was a sign that a life had ended there already. The blood on the doorpost was a sign that a life had already been taken. So there's really two things happening in this uh, passage. Notice again, Exodus 12:13, The blood shall be a sign for you. Notice this. The blood should be a sign for you. And on the houses where you are. And then he says, and then when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, you see it. There's some emphasis here that there's a sign both for us and for God. For us, when we see the blood, we remember that there was sin. And because of that sin, a life needed to be taken. They knew they were covered, but when God saw the blood, it was a sign to him that there was already a death there, that a death had already occurred. and The penalty against sin had already been paid. The technical name for this, the word that we use sometimes in theology, is propitiation. It means that the wrath of God has already been turned away. But though God would pass them on that night, it didn't mean that they were forgiven forever. Each year, they would have to repeat something like this. Bringing sacrifices constantly to the tabernacle and to the temple to be slayed over and over and over again. For the forgiveness of their sins. There's this progression we see through scripture. We see uh, at the very beginning, there was a death for Adam and Eve that would cover them. Uh, For Abraham and Isaac, there was a ram that took the place of a son. In Exodus, we see that this Passover lamb would cover the household. Later on with the tabernacle, we see the day of atonement and that sacrifice would would uh, be for a nation. And so now John the Baptist is progressing that all the way to completion when he points at Jesus and says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. does isn't just pass over them, he takes them away. And I want you to see this, that Jesus willingly became our permanent sacrificial lamb. This is what John is saying, that he is the the lamb of God who takes away, who did not take away and now we need something else, but he takes away permanently forever. See, when we look at the cross, we see the payment that's been made for our sin. When God looks at the cross, he sees the punishment that's been made already for our sin. This is what we call the substitutionary atonement, a substitute that allows God's judgment to pass over us. And it allows us to pass from death into life. As God passes over, as we pass over eternal death as well. Notice how the blood of Christ is, is at the forefront of the New Testament. Romans chapter 5 verse 9, he says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by what? By his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 John one, verse seven, but we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, Hebrews chapter 13. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. First Peter 1, uh, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus lay his life down as our sacrificial lamb to take away our sins? John would later say this, Because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus himself identified himself as this Passover lamb. He was identified as as the Passover lamb all throughout scripture, not just in, in John in this letter, but also as it went on. First 1 Corinthians 5, verse seven says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be new a lump that you are already unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Revelation 5, five through six says, and one of the elders said to me, looking at the new heaven, he says this, stop weeping and the lion that is front of the tribe of Judah from the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. John chapter one, verse 14. And he says this again, and the word became flesh. Why did he need to become flesh? that he could die and take our sins. He dwelt among us. Why? So that he could spill his blood for us. So when John says, and he looks at Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's not poetry. It's not saying something nice. What it is is saying, this is the one, this is the Jesus who will forever rescue you from your own sin. This is the one. What's interesting is that most kingdoms do anything that they can to protect their king. Even the game of chess. This is what you do. This is how you play. You protect the king. The king must be protected at all costs. One example of this comes from the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. If you know the history behind that, you know that British Prime Minister Winston Churchill desperately wanted to join uh, the forces and watch the invasion from the bridge of the battleship in the English Channel. Uh, U.S. General Dwight Eisenhower was desperate to stop him for fear that the Prime Minister might be killed in battle. And when it became apparent that Churchill would not be dissuaded, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority, King George And so the king went and told Churchill that if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the evasion, he could only conclude that it was also his duty as well. And at this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to stay back. He knew that he could never expose the king to such danger. King Jesus did exactly the opposite. With royal courage, he surrendered his body to be crucified. And on the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life for the life of his people. He would die for all the wrongs that we have done. And would do so completely atoning for all of our sins. The crown of thorns was meant to make a mockery of his royal claims but it actually spoke in significance as the king of the world, the lamb of God, who would take away our sins. I want to read Hebrews chapter 10. I don't know that it's been said any better than this. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, uh, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it was written of me in the scroll of the book. And when they said the above, he, he had neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices of offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeated sacrifices, the same sacrifices, which can never take away any sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us for after saying, this is the covenant which I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds possibly the greatest phrase that's ever been spoken. And I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Because where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. This is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin and the sin of the world. Today, we have the opportunity to remember this in what Jesus would uh, give us as what we call the Lord's Supper. What we say at exchange is the way that we'll respond to this is uh, with humility, with repentance, and with this desire to to seek him. Scripture would give us warnings that we wouldn't take of this, the Lord's Supper, uh, while we're also holding on to our sin. He says anyone who comes and is following Jesus sincerely is welcomed at the table. What it does is it, it reminds us of this incredible sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. His blood spilled for us, his body broken for us. I'd like to, to pray and give you a chance to reflect, to praise, to worship Christ for coming to be your sacrifice. We'll open the table and we'll take the Lord's Supper after we reflect. you Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for, again, these words that you've preserved for us. Much more than that, Jesus, we thank you for the life that you laid down for us. The blood that you spilt on our behalf for our sins. punishment for the things that we would pursue, and desire, and take. And so Lord, I pray that during this time, you would simply remind us of how much you love us and that you would lay your life down for us. Though not perfect and far from it, you would look at us and say, that's my child. And so, Lord, I pray that as we take this um, Lord's Supper, that you would remind us of this great love and that you would continue to heap the mercy on that we desperately need from you. Jesus, speak to us even now.